Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby, and Professor Steve Keen is with me again, of course, this time to talk about something that is at the very heart of Steve's work, the question of debt, ignored by most economists. But according to Steve, that ignorance of debt is one of the failings of neoclassic economics. And uh, there's always an immense amount of confusion over debt, isn't there? We seem to see government debt as a bigger problem than private debt. We don't want governments to owe money, but we're mortgaged to the hilt ourselves, and that's, that's not a problem. So why is that? And the media, of course, continually talks about government debt and the need to rein it in. Uh, we look at it as a percentage of GDP, and it scares us. Most countries have a website showing their national debt clock, normally focused entirely on government debt. In fact, if you're in here in the UK, if you go to nationaldebtclock.co.uk, you can see that Britain's national debt is well over a trillion pounds more if you include the liabilities for pensions and the like. Seems like a lot, doesn't it? So, Steve, let's look at terminology, first of all. Uh, when we talk about national debt, like on that website, uh, we do mean government debt, don't we? And uh, that seems to be the, the accepted debt definition of national debt. Yeah, that's what's what the people use. I mean, <laughs> my cynicism will come up pretty rapidly in this, but yes, that's what people see as the national debt. And therefore, of course, debt means uh, guilt in German, it means burden, uh, and that's how it's perceived. And um, with the first question, when you, someone asks you, you know, you quote a, a figure as being national debt or government debt, the first thing they say is, so is that gross or is that net? So what's the, mm. what, what's the difference? Well, a government can have uh, it can be, uh, owe debt to the rest of the world, and it can also simultaneously hold the uh, debt issued by the country. So if you think about China, for example, China, the China government, China's government would have some debt, of course, uh, quite a bit actually. But at the same time, it has uh, it owns bonds issued by the American government. So you look at the valuation of one, and you subtract the valuation of the other, and you work out whether China's a net debtor or a net creditor. Right. Of course, in that particular case, it'd be a net creditor right so the uk national debt grows at a rate of and i'm looking at this this website nationaldebtclock.co.uk uh the uk national debt grows at a rate of 5170 pounds per second so no wonder this scares the living daylights out of people. What's that figure mean? Well, it's the rate of it, 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 it's, it's you know, you taking the actual annual rate and converting it into, into minutes is not a particularly challenging thing to do. No, but it's saying it's saying just how much uh, new debt is being issued each year uh, by the government. And a more sensible way to look at that is say that what is the what is the annual change in government debt? Now, at the moment, it's running at about four uh, percent of uh, of GDP every year. So, um, you know, rather less scary than saying that. I mean, it, 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 that's, that's really a case of uh, scarecism, you know, bringing up a scary number somehow to make it look uh, more, more dangerous. But it really is uh, talking about a rate of growth of about 4% of GDP, slightly faster than the rate of growth of GDP itself. Now, before we get on to private debt, which, of course, is the bigger issue, um, how far can this keep on going for? For every country, if we're seeing this, you know, 4% growth per year, that can't go on indefinitely, can it? 
Well, it never does. I mean, it fluctuates quite dramatically. I'm looking at the data from 1988 to 2016 right now for the change in government debt, and it's ranged from anywhere between minus 6% to plus 20% during the financial crisis. And uh, it tends to respond to what's happening in the rest of the economy. People uh, see this as a driver. It's actually what I, I'd actually rather see it as, a, as like a shock absorber on, the, on a car, uh, other people see it as, a, as, a, as an engine or maybe even an anchor dragging over the edge of a cliff. But uh, it will grow and it has, it has grown and has shrunk compared to um, uh, GDP, for example. If you go right back to the 1945 and look at what was the level of government debt at that stage compared to GDP, it was well over 200%. So, uh, you know, people project this forward and say we're going to hit the moon at some stage. Well, I'm sorry, uh, you've come down from the moon. You hit the moon in the Second World War. Right. Okay. Now, private debt's the bigger issue, of course. Uh, we owe more individually and, and, and as companies than, than the government does, and yet it's rarely talked about. But, I mean, this is your big thing, isn't it, that we are, we are around the world holding too much private debt? Yeah, and as private debt is the, the just in terms of current figures, the uh, level of, of of government debt in England right now is about 105 percent of GDP. The level of private debt is 160 percent of GDP, and uh, and we've handled in terms of the amount of, of, of public debt we've handled in the past. The maximum level uh, at the at the end just after the end of the Second World War of government debt was 340 percent of GDP. And it then trended down virtually, uh, I mean, a sort of like an exponential decay process to 50% of GDP by uh, 19, uh, 1980. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at uh, private debt, and this is quite a remarkable thing that really does apply to England uh, quite uniquely. Uh, if you go back to 1880 all the way through to 1980, at no stage in that period did private debt exceed 75% of GDP. You had it going as low as uh, about 30%, as high as about 70%, but it never cracked 75%. 1980, shortly after 1980, it goes from, from uh, 60 to 120, dips a bit in the 1990s recession down to about 110%, and then blasts up to 190% by 2011, 2012, and it's then come, trended down after the crisis uh, a bit, so it's fallen from 190 to 160%. But England is in completely uncharted territory in its economic history of having a private debt level this high. On the other hand, the government debt it's got is the same level of government debt it had back in 1960. Right. So this is housing doing this, isn't it? It's the fact that uh, that the, the banks have uh, loosened their lending criteria, so people are spending bigger on houses, house prices have gone up, so we owe more. That's the uh, the major cause. I mean, it's, it's really, the reason I pointed out the date is that, of course, is when uh, Maggie Thatcher was just shortly after Maggie Thatcher became Prime Minister. Yeah. And her major thing was that it's deregulate, let the market, let the market decide uh, what what goes and what doesn't. And people focused on what happened in terms of the uh, industrial side of the economy. You know, let, let's, let's let loose the, uh, the dogs of commerce. But in fact, it was the dogs of finance that were let loose. Uh, that was that was the the big bang period deregulation of the finance sector let the let the city decide uh, what the level of of uh, leverage should be in the world and it was just this dramatic increase in lending in general by the by the financial sector and those numbers of course are only non financial sector debt the reason that I don't include financial sector debt there which of course matters is twofold uh, 
One is that the the, the data it's well actually one one major reason the data itself is such a mess because to me the important distinction is is as well as between uh, government debt and private debt it's also between uh, debt issued by banks and debt issued by non banks from the financial sector and because those distinctions aren't understood by the statisticians because they've been advised by conventional economists they mix them in the same you know, absolutely the same low-level number in, in this system. Uh, you've got a bank debt and non-bank debt lumped together, and it's simply useless from my point of view. Right. So I ignore it, but if you include that uh, financial sector debt, you get to the stage where I've seen estimates of England having a 500% private debt-to-GDP ratio when you include wow. financial sector debt. But, I mean, okay, aside from that, though, I mean, if 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 this has pushed up asset prices, in particular house prices, which, which it looks like that's what's happened, uh, is that such an issue if people because you ha- you have the debt but you still have the, you still have the asset unless the price of that asset comes crashing down if it doesn't is it isn't is it an issue we just we've just pay we've, we've borrowed more to pay more for something that um, is now worth more yep that was exactly what the uh, the uh, the argument that the Americans and the Spanish and so on used to excuse themselves having a, a, enormous levels of uh, of uh, of private debt are saying, okay, well, yes, the debt's risen, but the assets have risen as well, and the net position is looking pretty good. Um, the trouble with that argument is it works until asset prices crash, as you as you mentioned, mm. and that's what happened. And it turns out when you do the math on this stuff, which I've done recently for a paper with Paul Omron that I still have to have to write up for publication, uh, it's the mortgage debt that drives the house prices. So they're linked to each other. Rather than saying, you know, one reflects, uh, one one is offsets the other, mortgage debt drives the asset prices in the first place. And to keep the asset prices rising, the level of mortgage debt has to not merely rise, it has to rise at a faster and faster rate. Now, that is simply impossible to sustain ultimately. So any period where you've got rising house prices, where rising mortgage debt's also part of the equation, it's a bubble that's going to burst. Well, it's interesting, the psychology here, isn't it? And I've seen this uh, firsthand several times, bidding for houses in Australia, uh. where uh, it's not a question of how much is, it, is this house worth. It's a question of, I want this house. How much is the bank prepared to lend me? And and people seem to forego any idea of, uh, you know, the, the fact that it might be worth 20% or 30% more than it was a year ago doesn't mm. matter because it's a race. I've got to have this house. I'm not mm-hmm. saying I was thinking like this, but the people I was bidding against where I, you know, sensibly got out earlier than this. But, you yeah. know, it was a question of how far will the bank let me go? That's right. And this is this is the real weakness we have in the system with mortgage debt right now. And it could be easily addressed. The, the problem is if you and I are both competing over a house, then the one who wins the battle is the one who gets the higher leverage. And so it gives us a personal interest in, in excessive leverage. You know, if you get an, if you get a, a loan devaluation ratio of, of 80 percent and I get 80, 81, yeah. we're both on the same income and both equally good at saving. I beat you. Yeah. So we actually we have a, we have a personal interest in banks being willing to offer us more leverage. Of course, the downside of that is after you've bought the place, you then got a, you know, the ball and chain of a huge mortgage around your legs for an inordinate length of time. And it gets to the point where the Japanese, of course, during their housing bubble, were issuing, issuing 99 year mortgages where you had you actually ended up more your grandchildren to continue paying for the house you just bought <laughs> exactly it's all got a bit doolally hasn't it but look the, it has. the two offset each other i mean when government debt is high in the past anyway private sector 
dead has tended to be low and, and vice versa, hasn't it? Well, it's actually the, the causal mechanism goes from the from the private sector debt to the government debt. And it's a, the basic logic is that change in private debt is a credit. And credit, when credit's expanding, that expands demand far faster than we ever expanded by turning over the existing money supply more rapidly. In fact, that tends to fall over time. So when you see a large increase in private demand, it's normally driven by an increase in credit. Now, that increase in credit then means that more people have got jobs, therefore more people pay taxes, less people are on the dole, and government spending declines uh, and, and government revenue increases because of the increased finance coming from private credit. That means the government can actually end up running a surplus. And when that happens, the governments congratulate themselves. This is what happened with, uh, with uh, you remember, with uh, our dear uh, departed John Howard, John, uh, John Howard and yeah. co, and, and Paul Keating before that at various times when the surplus was run. Uh, fantastic, great management, beautiful set of numbers, et cetera, et cetera. What it really reflected was in the background, a credit bubble was driving up asset prices, driving up leverage, and driving up the amount of money turning over in the economy, meaning the government could harvest that money and come out with a surplus. But it was actually a sign that we'd driven in a credit bubble, which then burst. And of course, when it bursts, as well as asset prices going down, credit creation collapsed collapses, the income and the expenditure from credit disappears from the economy. It can actually go negative if credit go, if credit actually becomes negative. People pay off more debt than they take out, so credit is actually negative. And you go into a huge slump. And then at that point, government spending blows out. So the causal relationship effectively goes from credit, which is change in private debt, to unemployment, which, which goes down when credit goes up. Uh, and then the level of unemployment is the main determinant level of government spending. Yes, yeah, so that I mean that would imply to me that um, you know that, that they counterbalance each other. So you'd have a when a government debt is high, private debt would be low, and vice versa. And yet, what we've got now is a case where both are very high. Yeah, it's actually that that's the side effect of being involved in. The, we, are, we are currently in the biggest private debt bubble in the history of humanity. Right, that, that's encouraging. The, the, <laughs> the best data, the best data available put together is both the English data I've just already quoted and the American data. The English data was put together by the Bank of England after the crisis, they, as well as doing data on and recording current debt going back to about uh, 1980 or thereabouts. They extended the data back to 1880 uh, using the, the historical records they've got in the Bank of England. And that gave me the figures about private debt in America and in England never exceeding 75% of GDP from 1880 to 1980. So we know for the from the late um, capitalist period in England right through to now, um, we've got the biggest level of debt they've ever seen. The same thing for America. America's data is not quite as uh, consistent as that because there are three overlapping time series I had to put together to uh, produce a, a, a graph of total debt over the last um, 200 years. Um, and there were overlaps in each of these series, which meant that I could say, well, I can bring one down and push one up to make them consistent because they, in the overlap, they, they correlate very tightly, but the levels are different. So I've done that with the census data from 1834 through to, to uh, 1952. And then in 1952, or 19, actually 1945, the... Um, current Federal Reserve data takes over. Now, on that basis, and it's, it's along with that explanation to with the data I'm going to be trying to draw a, a picture of in people's minds, but you had private debt starting in 1935 at about 65% of GDP, falling quite rapidly until 
uh, it collapsed from 30% to 10% in the 1860s. And that's when government debt went from zero to 30%. So that's the up and down thing you're talking about. Mm. Then a huge period of rising private debt to 80% of GDP in the uh, just before the First World War. That then collapses during the First World War. Bang up goes government debt opposite direction. Then we have the Roaring Twenties. This is the most important one prior to what we've actually been through. Private debt went from 55% of GDP to, to 90% as government debt fell from 30 to 15 percent. Of course, during that stage, uh, the, the roaring 20s, the government was congratulating itself on its good economic management because for the whole of the 1920s, it was running a surplus of 1 percent of GDP. Everything yeah. was fantastic. We were getting setting aside uh, money for a rainy day. We were actually causing a thunderstorm because what then happened was the credit uh, collapsed at the end of the, 19, the 1920s when the, when the asset bubble, we all know as Wall Street, collapsed. And when that collapsed, uh, companies were forced to liquidate the debt they did hold. The debt was mainly corporate back in the 19, 1920s. And we had the Great Depression. And that's the, the, one of the great ironies of the Great Depression was is, uh, when you, from 1930 on, Americans were collectively reducing their debt. They were paying it down. The credit was negative. But the debt ratio blasted up from 90% of GDP to 100, almost 150% because GDP was actually falling faster than people were paying off their debts. So the debt was falling by, by 10% per annum. GDP was falling by 30% per annum. So you've got this huge level of debt, peaking at about 145% in 1932. Then it trended down, and most of it fell during the Second World War, when, again, government debt rose dramatically from 30% to 110% of GDP. Uh, but, of course, that huge increase in government spending at the time when you couldn't buy anything as a consumer with all ration cars and the... the uh, fact firms are being paid to produce bombs to drop on on germany and japan um that made the private sector could deliver very very comfortably and so private sector debt fell down to about 35 percent of gdp at the end of the second world war when government debt was 110 percent again the same thing applies in the americas applied in england there was like an exponential decay of government debt from 110 percent to 30 percent by 1980 but across the whole of the uh, post-war period, private debt rose. There were a couple of bubbles in the whole process, but private debt went from 35% of GDP in 1945 to 170% in just after the, the, the uh, in 2010. So, is it, there has to be a way then to stop another uh, another crash happening, which could be any day now? Um, that, that you know, it, I mean, if you look back at the 1920s, wouldn't the logical thing have been for the government to say, uh, uh, "Oh, look, you know, private debt seems to be getting uh, a little bit yeah. out of hand now. We need to pull some of that back, and we can carry some of that. At, you know, we need to transfer that private debt to government debt. Well, that would that would be the logical thing to do. I'm not quite sure how you do it, but that would be the logical approach, wouldn't it? Well, that would be that logical approach if you think private debt matters. And the trouble is you and I do, mm. uh, but the mainstream economics thinks it doesn't. And its reasoning for saying it doesn't uh, matter is, frankly, juvenile. It's about time this was said publicly. I'm sick and tired of having to kowtow to these guys because they have a juvenile uh, reason for avoiding the importance of private debt. What they say simply is that debt is just a, a transfer between individuals. Uh, the borrower gets extra buying power. The lender has to do without that cash in the meantime. It's like a seesaw. One balances the other. Equally, when the debtor pays it back, then the debtor's spending goes down. The lender's spending capacity goes up. Seesaw goes the other way. The average height of the seesaw remains constant. That's their, that's their argument. Same as the reason that they say they don't worry about people's liabilities, just compare them to their assets. That ignores the role of banks in creating money. 
and this has become becoming incredibly frustrating that this nonsense uh, dominates how we think about private debt because when you and I lend to each other, we've got to take money out of our bank accounts and transfer to each other. We've got to save the money in the first place. You have to do with that spending power to lend me money. But when a bank lends you money, it records a positive on its asset side. It increases its assets by, by the amount it's lending you. And it records, for it, from its point of view, a negative on its uh, liability side, which is the extra deposit money you get. So the loan creates deposits. And that creates spending power. Now that can that that can that that credit that's that's new demand. That when you borrow money, you don't borrow it to look at it and and have to pay the bank back uh, the interest. You borrow to spend. So your borrowing actually finances more expenditure, and that boosts demand. So the change in the level of debt is a change in the level of demand and income as well. And when you become dependent on that, you can get to the stage where, as we have in the last 20 years, where credit growth is a huge proportion of total demand, far bigger than it should be. And you get to the stage then where you get take on so much debt by every time you increase credit, you increase your level of accumulated debt. We get to the stage where we hit this total debt ceiling, which America hit at 170% of GDP back in 2010, and the economy falls over. Yeah. So using that so, see, using that seesaw analogy that you gave, where you know yeah. everything's in, in perfect balance, it's not because we're all just getting fatter and fatter and fatter, and the seesaw gets more and more out of kilter until uh, we're so fat it breaks. I guess is the uh, it's the analogy, isn't it? Well, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a seesaw on a, on a on a uh, elevator. <laughs> Okay, going up and down all the time, and when you come down, it is it isn't a comfortable landing. Yeah. So this this is the problem we have. Private debt should be a target of of government policy. Right. So we how do so how do, yeah. how do they do that? Let's go back to the nineteen twenties. Then you're the government. You want mm-hmm. to try and avoid the uh, uh, the the Great Depression. So you say, right, we need to shift some of this private debt into uh, in, into government debt. How do you do that? Well, there's two things about it. One is that the, during the 1920s, the government was enthralled to the argument of sound finance. And that's exactly the same argument you get today. The government should be, you know, should be like a household and should uh, should be saving money. So it should be taxing the public more than it's spending on the public. And if it runs and it can run out of money, all this sort of panic stuff that's that's common common thought amongst journalists as well as amongst, uh, amongst uh, mainstream economists. That... Is nonsense because the government creates money by its own spending. It's spending when when it spends, it actually literally creates money in the economy. When it taxes, it takes money out of out of circulation from the economy, and it can therefore it can tax it can spend as much as it likes. There is no practical reason that the government can run out of money in the same sense that you and I can, because you and I can't print this stuff. Where you know we always talk about the government printing money. That means it can do something the rest of us can't. Mm. Now, what that means is it's got a power that it has to use responsibly, but it doesn't not have a power at all. And the trouble is the way people talk about it, as if the government doesn't have any power, and if it if it doesn't uh, you know constrain its spending now, uh, it won't be able to service it in the future, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera all mythical but when you apply that myth what you do is you take money out of circulation when people still need money and they've got a second way of getting it which is by going to the banks and borrowing so when you have things like this fetish for surpluses which the american government fell into in the 1920s they were taking money out of circulation and people could only borrow money instead and of course they borrowed money from banks speculated on the stock market thought they were doing brilliantly until the whole thing crashed in 1930 right so what should they have done then how 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 should they have reined it in they should have first of all been comfortable at running a deficit a deficit in terms of the american economy for the last one one and a quarter centuries the average deficit has been 3% of gdp so the standard thing is to run a deficit 
Uh, and that's because the economy is growing and it is a growing amount of money. What have it badly, the government does many, many things, and I'm a great critic of bureaucrats, as you know, uh, but have it badly, it does things. It's one of the two ways of creating money. A growing economy needs needs more money, so the government's uh, running a deficit as part of the way of creating that money. That's one thing. Secondly, uh, when you have a, a situation like the 1930s, one way that that can be handled is is, is by the government taking on private debt um, and then paying out people who are going to go bankrupt otherwise or keeping them keeping them afloat. Um, there's also the possibility of writing the debt off. I, I haven't researched Roosevelt's bank holiday properly, but I understand that the Roosevelt's bank holiday was used to consolidate and write off a large amount of debt that was seen as irredeemable from the banking sector and then consolidate the banks, shutting down the ones which were insolvent and letting them reopen after all those books had been tidied up. And that was a major part of reducing private debt. So it comes down to getting, in some ways, cleaning up your accounting books. But if you, in the first of those two things, where you say, well, okay, the government should just be happy to run in a, in a deficit. If the government mm-hmm. increases their, their own spending, plus you've got the, uh, the, the private sector spending as well, it, the, the government is just going to push more money into the economy, isn't it? So therefore, there's going to be even faster growth. And this, isn't that part of the problem? It depends on on the financial system and, and then the, well, you're talking about the, the real estate system as well. Germany, uh, for example, has uh, has been actually reducing private debt for the last 10 years or so because it's got such a huge export surplus that exports are effectively the source of it uh, generating the money supply needs domestically. So the private sector has reduced its debt. That also reflects the fact that Germany has incredibly good conditions for renters um, so much so that when you rent a property, you're expected to supply not the crockery, but you're expected to supply the kitchen. Previous renter takes the kitchen they installed out with them. So renters have got enormous property rights compared to what they've got in the rest of the world. And therefore, nobody feels like they've got to get out of rental accommodation and people don't find each other to get a, to get a property. So there's a fairly you know, languid real estate market in, in Germany and and therefore gearing doesn't rise, private debt doesn't tend to rise, in fact it can fall. So it's partly changes like that that are needed to get us out of these debt bubbles in the first place. But if you have um, uh, a government, if you have a decent um, land ownership system, which Germany has, and you don't have pressure for people to go and gamble against each other for house prices, then a government running a deficit can mean the private sector only borrows for, for, for necessary purposes, for and a consumption you can't lay up buying a car or uh, for investment by firms and your debt's used productively rather than the unproductive speculation, which is the way it's used in most of the West. Right. So it sounds like that's going to happen. That, that sort of speculation is going to happen by nature unless you put some sort of policies, as Germany has done, uh, to try and rein that in. So, for example, I mean, uh, people are now buying multiple investment properties because they can uh, because tax law tends to allow it and gives them a deduction for it. Uh, but also they're saying, well, this is an easy way to make money. This is uh, and, and so more and more people are doing it. But if uh, if regulation said, yeah, but actually, let's look after the people who are renting from you as well, and that's not going to be quite as beneficial for you financially, um, then uh, the, you perhaps get less of this runaway um, asset price. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to have people being landlords as long as they want to live off rental income rather than capital gains. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the trouble. This is all motivated by capital gains, and the capital gains themselves come from rising mortgage debt. Right. And so you get you get locked into a, into a, into a dangerous positive feedback loop that gives you asset bubbles and then crashes afterwards. Right. Okay, so finally, final question then. Um, you, you gave the point in Germany where, uh, you know, they've got a, a good balance of trade. So is should that be the focus? Should the government be saying, oh, look, everyone's doing really well, but we still are a uh, an, a net importer. We need to spend big so that we actually uh, compete more effectively on the world economy, and we've actually got stuff that people want to buy from us. And if we need to spend money on setting that up, we should do that now. Yeah, that's that's the really important deficit. The government deficit is not a problem. This is so long as you're issuing debt in your own currency. Uh, there's effectively no practical limit on the amount of debt the government can either issue or service. And even servicing that debt is just an accounting operation run by the central bank to credit uh, depositors' accounts when they when they when they own government bonds. It's it, the money is generated by the capacity of the state. Uh, to do so, but there's no problem uh, unless it has effects like inflation or it gives you a trade deficit. Now, a trade deficit is very, very different because you, if you're running a trade deficit, you've got to continually be borrowing other people's money to buy goods off them. And therefore, you get uh, what you end up doing is either having to pay a large part of your national income overseas or you've got to sell off your domestic assets to do to raise the same money. So you cease owning your own capital. And that's what happens when you're running a trade deficit of the order of 6% of GDP every year, which is what England is doing. That's been ignored while they've obsessed about a government deficit, often half that level. So we really need to say that the main focus is getting trade back in balance again. And that, of course, involves taking on countries like Germany too, which because they've, they're hiding under the under the bushel of the euro, uh, they've got an undervalued exchange rate that gives them an enormous advantage against uh, countries with uh, with uh, without that cover. And that's one reason I was in favour of Brexit because I was hoping it'd get us away from the overvalued English pound, which indeed is what's happened. But in the meantime, the damage that's been done by an overvalued pound and by an undervalued mark is quite astronomical. Mm, all right. Well, look, I feel like we're getting close to solving the problem. We just uh, we just need to make everyone else recognise it, and, uh, and then, <laughs> which is the big t- which is the big problem. And then once everyone recognises the issue, then we can get about fixing it. But uh, that's a two stage process, and we're not even at the, the beginning of the first step. Mm, we're going to get a few more listeners here. We've got to get a few more listeners. Absolutely. Uh, right. Great, Steve. Uh, talk again soon. Okay, mate. Bye. Now, next time uh, we talk more about debt in an episode curiously titled. Sex with accountants. Now, (laughs) that lays itself open, if you'll excuse the pun, lays itself open uh, to all sorts of interpretations. So if you're an accountant, well, it, it could be your lucky day next time. That's in the next episode. Till then, thanks for listening. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.